podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. I'm Frank Morano. Welcome to the Racket Report, the podcast that tries to take you inside the world of organized crime, not just Cosa Nostra, but occasionally even Kosher Nostra. That's right. For all of the association that the mob has had with Italians, Italian and being run by Italians, one of the things that so often gets overlooked is the incredible role throughout the 20th century especially that the Jewish mob has played. And now there is a phenomenal new book that looks at the world of Jewish gangsters from a very rare perspective. Not quite the perspective of a gangster, not quite the perspective of a victim of gangsterism, but maybe something in between. The book is called Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz, The Jewish Mob, A Family Affair. And a lot of you may have heard about Dutch Schultz before and the legend of his missing treasure. We'll find out if we can get you some tips on how to find it. The author of Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz, Alan Geik, joins me today on The Racket Report. Hello, Alan. Hi, Frank, and thank you so much for having me on your show. It's great to it's great to have you. I appreciate you uh, being so generous with your time. Uh, before we get into the details of the book, which I am uh, just about finished with, and I think it's terrific, let me uh, get you to provide a little background for folks before we get into the nitty gritty. When we talk about Murder Inc., what was Murder Inc.? Well, Murder, Inc. was given that name by a newspaper reporter uh, when uh, they finally busted and people informed from within in Murder, Incorporated. Basically, what it was was the enforcement arm of organized crime, which had just begun to formalize itself in the very early 30s. And uh, that's when Murder, Incorporated, or the combination, I believe, it was called at the time, and uh, they uh, nobody really knows. I see so many different numbers of how many people were uh, exec- uh, assassinated by Murder Incorporated hitmen, but I don't think anybody really has a, a good number of it. Dutch Schultz, a lot of people know him as a legendary gangster figure, but they may not know much beyond just a name. Who was Dutch Schultz? Well, his real name was Arthur Flegenheimer. He was one of the mob bosses in the 1920s going into the 1930s. Uh, He had a lot of uh, rackets in Harlem. He was one of the uh, people who basically took the uh, numbers racket over in Harlem uh, from uh, the local people who were uh, uh, running it up until that time. He was also big into uh, everything that was going on at the time, uh, bootlegging and 
one of his what made him different than some of the others was that he really couldn't he was really an outsider with organized crime as it was becoming um uh as it was developing and he uh he was a um uh he was a target of the governor of New York and they wanted him and they got a very young uh, prosecutor named uh, Thomas Dewey uh who had just finished prosecuting another mobster and they were going after him and he wanted to kill Tom Dewey but that was so bad for business the uh, people running uh, uh, organized crime at the time specifically Lucky Luciano Meyer Lansky and several of the others they wanted it uh, they would never permit that that would have brought them all down so uh, they wound up taking out Dutch Schultz himself Tell me how this book began, with, or at least the idea for this book, began with a phone call from your cousin Ira. <laughs> yeah, my, my dear cousin called me up about five years ago, and he was ecstatic. He was incandescent. He said, you have to go to this website and look on the uh, homepage. So I opened my computer. I went, and there was a picture of some... Uh, uh, men in a police lineup, 1930s, you know, the black and white photo, fedoras, the overcoats. <laughs> and uh, I said, so what? He said, well, that's my father on the far right. And I said, Uncle Saul, I never saw him as that young of a man. I knew him in the uh, 50s. Uh, and so uh, he said, look, it's my uncle on the, ho- on the homepage. It's not Uncle George. It's not Uncle Charlie. It's not any of those guys. And his father was the lowest level criminal. He had a long police record, uh, but he never really uh, was in the um, uh, he was never uh, uh, he never had that kind of weight within that uh, group of criminals, certainly not even within the family criminals. And a couple of weeks later, I just coincidentally happened to see my sister go to her house in Boston. She's an attorney and uh, always has been interested in this as well. And when I mentioned that story, she opened up some boxes of photographs, and there were all these people we knew as young, uh, much younger in our much younger lives, and it just jumped out at me that these people had a story to tell. And there would be uh, Uncle George at a bar mitzvah or a wedding, my father sitting next to Johnny Dioguardi in a uh, night in the Copacabana in the mid-'50s, And the photos just kept showing up. And then my sister took out a book that was called Mafia. It was put out by the uh, Treasury Department, maybe about 1980. And they were one page uh, on each criminal, a photograph where they uh, went to jail, their uh, associates, their family, a one page uh, story of each criminal. And there they all were in there as well. So I just had to. Uh, write the write it out because basically my sister and I are the last ones who knew them personally. So tell folks exactly what your family connection is to the people involved in the story of uh, of Dutch Schultz Murder Inc. the Jewish mob and why the book is called Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz. Well, Uncle Charlie was a, a very special character. Um, uh, the title struck me at the beginning, and I was wedded to it, and I, I always thought that it it told the story. Uh, uh, Charlie, uh, when Uncle Charlie went to jail uh, for killing Dutch Schultz, he was 
uh, turned in by an informer, Abe Relis, in 1941, and he wound up going to jail for 23 years. And in that time, my father, being basically a civilian, or we let's say Kosha Nostra adjacent, uh, he he brought money to uh, Charlie's family. And he and my mother knew him for their whole lives. And when he got out of jail, my brother, who was a detective in New York City, um, Charlie was always concerned about his uh, notoriety. And he was concerned about parole violations. And my brother basically said at that time, uh, when it was uh, much, uh, let's say, a much uh, more Wild West police department, he said, we'll take care of anything that comes up with the uh, parole. And as a result, when I was with him, he always referred to me as his nephew. And he referred to my brother that way as well. And I could never imagine calling him anything but Uncle Charlie when I saw him. And in a way, he all of these men, uh, they, they wanted camaraderie by the time I was becoming an adult. Uh, they didn't have social clubs like uh, um, uh, ex-Italian uh, in the Italian community. They just they sat in uh, uh, coffee shops, the Dubrows in Midtown Manhattan, and many places like that. And they wanted to converse. And more than that, they often argued with each other about fine points of what had happened 20 or 30 years earlier. So my sister and my brother and I, uh, we sort of had a special front seat to the whole thing. Oh, well, that is uh, wild. So just to talk about his demise and uh, your uncle Charlie's uh, role in that demise, just reiterate, why did they want to kill Dutch Schultz? What had he done to become so problematic that they would commit murder? And in the case of your Uncle Charlie, he would end up going to prison for a long time for it. Well, uh, Dutch Schultz had uh, a previous um, um, arrest in upstate New York. He spent lots of money on uh, defense attorneys. And uh, nobody thought he would he would get away with uh, the tax evasion charges. But somehow it was upstate New York and the jury bar bought his story. But in the meantime, a lot of the other mob guys had taken over his racket, specifically numbers and uh, um, uh, other other kinds of uh, union, uh, uh, corrupt union rackets. And uh, when he got. Uh, he was acquitted of the charges, and he basically wanted everything back. And immediately when that uh, acquittal came, the governor hired Tom Dewey, a young prosecutor, to go after him. And and uh, almost uh, very quickly, Dutch Schultz became uh, sort of kryptonite, or he became uh, uh, he became someone who really they had to get rid of. Uh, just to keep their own organization going. Because remember, at that time, uh, uh, organized crime was, uh, the, the crimes they were involved in were not seen as, uh, they, they were victimless crimes. They had provided booze throughout Prohibition, which had just ended three years before Dutch Schultz was killed. Uh, they uh, numbers racket, gambling, loan sharking, all of these were uh, not seen as uh as uh, terrible crimes by the public. 
But once they killed a prosecutor, everything could change overnight. And so that was the reason why they went after Dutch Schultz. And Uncle Charlie, by that time, had been one of their major, one of their go-to hitmen. There were several, mm. and he was one of them. And he was so upset because when the uh, uh, assassination happened, he and his partner who went in, a guy named Mendy Weiss, who wound up getting the electric chair in the uh, during the war for a totally unrelated murder, but they went in and they killed four Dutch Schultz and Dutch Schultz's three associates. Uh, but um, Dutch, uh, Uncle Charlie had a uh, habit of going through people's pockets uh, <laughs> after he took them out. And Mendy Weiss and the driver drove away. And uh, Dutch Schultz, I mean, uh, Uncle Charlie was so outraged, he walked all the way from Newark to Manhattan. And he was telling people about what had happened. And ultimately, that backfired on him six years later when Abe Rellis uh, recalled the conversations about him killing Dutch Schultz. And so he pleaded no contest and wound up getting a, a life sentence, which he got out after 23 years. Did you view your Uncle Charlie any differently after you knew that he had committed at least one but probably multiple murders? No, because uh, so many of them, I mean, I didn't meet him until I was in college. The others I knew since I was a child. And uh, often they would be disappeared for, for jail sentences. But I knew of Uncle Charlie. I knew that my father, even though he didn't make a big deal out of it, had gone to give money to his family. We sort of lived in that culture even though my sister, brother, and I were not uh, ever thinking of being part of it, uh, that was out of the question. Even though my brother got arrested in the Prince of the City, uh, uh, which involved organized crime also. But uh, I never thought of Uncle Charlie as anything but, uh, uh, I, I mean, I knew what he did. And at no time did we ever uh, minimize that or normalize these people, but we took them as they were. And Charlie was someone who was as hungry for companionship as anybody else. While he was on his deathbed in 1935, uh, Dutch Schultz purportedly spoke about a $7 million fortune that he had buried in upstate New York. Now, they claim that this treasure today would be worth more than $50 million. Do you lend any credence to any of the stories about the the legendary Dutch Schultz treasure? And uh, why do you think no one's found it? Uh, I, I don't have a very strong opinion about it, but I could say one thing that so many of the stories that I had read conflicted with not just about Dutch Schultz, but it just in general about organized crime in general. For one thing, he was on his deathbed. He was dying. And these were things that he was saying. I don't know if anybody had heard that before when he was, let's say, rational um, that's uh, something that uh, occurred to me that why is everybody giving such weight to something that a man who was delirious talking mm. about? Mm. Yeah, and it could have been some sort of uh, an elaborate uh, prank to get back at everybody. He could have been a little bit better. <laughs> sure.
Now, this book uh, is obviously a bit different because of your familial history and because you know a lot of the people personally who were sharing so many of the stories as they reminisced about life in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Why else is this book different? What makes this book different from other books about the mafia, the Jewish mob books? Well, I, I think you hit it when you said that there, there was a per, we were we were there talking and involved and in a family with the people that and an extended family for sure as as well. And I can't recall too many books that I've read where uh, where, where that was the case. Most people were writing it as history books, and there's nothing wrong with that. I read some really wonderful books about it. But as it turned out, and as the feedback I got from people uh, who've read it and have talked to me about it, that, that that one fact of it was our family, and these were people talking to us uh, over a period of years— mm. And uh, uh, that made it uh, qualitatively different. You spend a, a lot of time exploring and writing about Arnold Rothstein, uh, who is probably the the gangster or the uh, professional gambler that most came to symbolize gangsterism, particularly among Jewish gangsters in the 1920s. A lot of people know him these days as the man that fixed the 1919 World Series. A lot of people know him because he was a major character in the TV series Boardwalk Empire. What can you tell us about Arnold Rothstein and folks who may not be familiar with him 100 years after he was in his prime? Who was he? What did he do? Well, it's interesting you said about 100 years because when Arnold Rothstein was there, in a low, he was on the Lower East Side, and there was no television. Radio was in even a, it was what happened on the street to these people. Arnold Rothstein was a uh, came from a a, a wealthy uh, German Jewish family that had arrived uh, uh, decades before these new arrivals uh, to the Lower East Side of Italians and Jews. But all he really wanted to do, I mean, he was a degenerate gambler. Uh, with a, uh, a, uh, a culture that uh, he, if he wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer, his family could have easily supported that uh, that goal. But really what he wanted to do was shoot dice in an alleyway on the Lower East Side <laughs> or in, on his knees or in a, or in a fancy uh, uh, speakeasy where they had gambling as well. But one of the things about the uh, 1919 World Series, which was fixed, uh, that I grew up understanding there was a twist to it. And uh, Uncle George had mentioned that Uncle George became one of the uh, owners of the uh, Stardust. And uh, his story was sort of uh, a metaphor for the growth of organized crime. But uh, to these guys on the Lower East Side, uh, they didn't know they it it seemed that he may not have fixed the World Series, but he knew it was going to be fixed. So he bet on it without having to put up any money. Mm. That gave him even greater street credibility to these 12 and 13-year-old kids who just wanted to be part of that life. And I do mention one of the stories, and uh, Uncle George had told us many times 
he was standing on the street corner on the Lower East Side, and out of a building came Arnold Rothstein, who called him over and gave him a couple of dollars and said, go give this to Nate. You know where that crap came is uh, three blocks away? Just give it to Nate. And so George was, this was like, you know, Muhammad Ali uh, picking him out in a crowd or something. I couldn't even make a uh, comparison. But he ran over to Nate's uh, crap game, and he said to Nate, um, Mr. Rothstein told me to give you this. And what George remembered for the rest of his life was that he ha- he said his name and Arnold Rothstein in the same sentence. <laughs> That's very funny. I guess and it this was you- Uncle George who became a uh, – uh, a contemporary of uh, all the uh, people who, who were taking skims uh, from uh, Las Vegas. He was the one who was doling it out. So who was uh, it that was responsible for Arnold Rothstein's killing? Well, uh, as the story goes, Arnold Rothstein was in a two-day poker game in a hotel in Midtown Manhattan. I think it was called the Park Central, but I'm not sure. But uh, he, he he got busted out, and everybody was shocked because he was cursing. He, he was usually a very classy uh, gambler, and uh, he had that kind of curse uh, persona. But he was he really lost it. And uh, two nights before the 1928 election, which had Herbert Hoover against uh, Al Smith, who was for prohibition, and Herbert Hoover was not. Uh, um, uh, Arnold Rothstein was uh, taking a lot of bets uh, that Hoover would win, but he he kept talking about that card game and saying he wasn't going to pay these people off, which was a shock because in those days, just as now, you have a debt, you pay it off. And this was Arnold Rothstein uh, saying it, and uh, he got a call two nights before the election, and he went over to the hotel, the same hotel, and he got uh, – they found him in the basement somewhere. Wow. Uh, uh, he was he was uh, uh, dying, but he wouldn't say who who the uh, murderers were. Wow, uh, that's uh, that's something. So we we think his death might have been tied to a refusal to pay a debt from that 1928 election. It's it, it, it no doubt was uh, uh, everything that I heard about it and everything I read, which I. Did a fair amount of research to uh, for the book uh, indicated that it was the people who uh, the two men who he wouldn't pay off. You talk about the gangster dominance in New York time and the era of the Roaring Twenties. I don't think there were many men that personified that more than the mayor of New York City, Jimmy Walker, or as a lot of people called him, Gentleman Jimmy Walker. You describe him in, in, in the book as the perfect mayor, at least for one quarter of society, one sector of the world. Who was Mayor Jimmy Walker? Why is he significant? And what did his leadership of New York City mean to the mob? Well, um, he became mayor in the middle of Prohibition, about 1926. Prohibition started 1920, ended uh, 1932, and he became the mayor. And he made it clear that he was against the Prohibition laws. Uh, he was support. He put out the word that the speakeasies were fine with him. 
the city was growing by uh, such uh, leaps and bounds that he was basically one of the more corrupt people. However, having said that, he also knew um, how to uh, work the public. He helped build out the whole subway system so that people could get to Manhattan from uh, Queens and the Bronx and uh, uh, upper Manhattan and Brooklyn. He started the sanitation department. He was very well respected by the people of New York at the time because, again, they didn't see any of these things, speakeasies and prohibition, as uh, victim crimes, even though we know that the other things, uh, labor unions and extortion, these were all going on at that time by these same people. The uh, one one of the other interesting titled chapters in your book has a pretty interesting story behind it, and it has to do with uh, Meyer Lansky and a pastrami sandwich. <laughs> uh, Meyer Lansky has been de- depicted dozens, maybe hundreds of times in classic films, classic TV shows. There's a lot of other cinematic portrayals of fictional characters based on him. Really, something of a legend in mob circles. What was your interaction with Meyer Lansky, and uh, how did he come to be so generous with pastrami? (laughs) um, These people at that time, and I have to say, one of the most remarkable things about writing this book was that um, they've all taken on a new aura given social media Mm. and movies and The Sopranos and The Godfather and Casino, all that. They were doing. I knew. I knew of Meyer Lansky from the time I was born, and yet he was just the one who was high up the ladder. But the incident you're referring to was my uncle George when he came to town. It was a big deal because we were five people in a two-bedroom apartment in the Bronx, and he was staying in the Essex House or the Hampshire House on Central Park South. And I'd go up to see him uh, with the family. And I went up this one time, and there my father was there. We were going to go somewhere, and a bunch of men were in. And I saw this man sitting by the uh, window, and I knew who it was. It was Meyer Lansky. And yet he had his shirt open. He could have been any Jewish man in the building I grew up in in the Bronx on the Grand Concourse uh, who came over to sit down and talk. I knew his uh, rep- I knew who he was, however— And my father introduced me to him. I'm sure I said Mr. Lansky, because I would have said that to anybody at the time. And uh, he, out of uh, shockingly, said to me, do you want a pastrami sandwich? Uh, And I said, "Uh, no. Uh, I shook my head. And he said, well, share one with me. (laughs) And it was, uh, I, I nodded my head. And then he said something that I'll always remember. He said, pastrami killed more Jews than Hitler. Now, I have to tell you this, Frank, because (laughs) my sister later told me, now, I thought this was the most, I could never repeat that and say, oh, Maya Lansky told me, because it would have just sounded, made me into a blowhard for years after that. I did say that line many times in restaurants with friends, but I never attributed it to him. But my sister told me that that was one of the oldest jokes in Jewish comedians' book. 
I, I'm not. Continue. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. I I think um, that that joke is so old among uh, among Jewish uh, joke tellers. Even Moses, I believe, told that joke <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, but uh, so um, <laughs> there you go. So you had the pastrami sandwich, and uh, but I, 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 the thing was when when he said that, I laughed so loud that. He looked at me, and years later, maybe I was reading into it, it was like the laugh of someone who wasn't a sycophant or someone who was around him who had a laugh. It was this young guy who just really enjoyed that joke because I had never heard it before. Wow. And that is, uh, that's very, it's like the first time someone hears the why did the chicken cross the road joke. Exactly. Right. Uh, hey, speaking of Jews, you do touch upon the issue of anti-Semitism in the country at the time, including by prominent Americans and well-known, very successful people like Henry Ford. I'm wondering if you could speak to Henry Ford and the growing anti-Semitism in some sectors of the country at that time and what that meant for Jewish gangsters. Did the Jewish gangsters also have to bear the brunt of anti-Semitism or did it drive Jews who felt distrustful of other Gentile institutions into more partnerships with Jewish gangsters? Speak to that if you can, Alan. Yeah, well, Henry Ford uh, was one of the most important uh, uh, innovators of the early 20th century, the Model T. He put people on the road. So his words and his uh, position were very powerful. Right after the war, he had bought a newspaper in uh, Dearborn, uh, Michigan, and he uh, he used it to really put out dozens, and I don't know the exact number, of, of uh, vile anti-Semitic um, uh, uh, articles and uh, actually, he got sued by a Jewish attorney uh, for that. But he, he, being he was so important in American culture at the time, his words had a lot of weight. And uh, he put out articles like, Jewish jazz is now America's music. Uh, I just remember that of, uh, of the others I had mentioned mm. uh, in the book. But what was interesting about Henry Ford was that obviously he he, uh, his center was Detroit. And prohibition began in uh, Michigan two years before it became a uh, federal offense, a prohibition. But so uh, a Jewish gang, uh, the Purple Gang in Detroit, would bring in whiskey from Canada. And Henry Ford was able to point out uh, Jewish, uh, or as he put it, uh, Jewish uh, uh, crime and criminality. And uh, yet, uh, those Jewish gangsters, as came uh, even when I knew them later on, more than willing to fight on the street any anti-Semites. Now, these weren't religious Jews by any means, but these were people who were not going to take what their parents had to take in Eastern Europe. And I remember hearing that from, from my father, who was uh, on the street, too, before World War II as a young man. Uh, and you brought up uh, there was a very conflicted view in the Jewish community and in the Jewish newspapers uh, after the war and probably earlier, maybe even when the first immigration came at 1880 or whatever, because the Jewish gangsters were more than willing to fight on the street, any anti-Semites. But they were all, and that was uh, something that the people really admired and respected because they had come from places where they couldn't fight at all 
And here were these men fighting uh, the people who were uh, taunting them. But at the same time, those same men were also in charge of uh, uh, extorting them and uh, shaking them down and uh, uh, running prostitution and drug rings in the Jewish communities. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of the one on the Lower East Side. So there was a very conflicted view in the newspapers and also hence in in the uh, Jewish community towards these gangsters. Whenever you're dealing with uh, history from 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago, especially history that has been so mythologized and depicted in so many different works of popular culture, sometimes it can become difficult for people to separate fact from fiction, myth from reality. And there's a lot of myths that tend to grow about certain characters. I'm wondering, does your book sort of bust any myths that people may have about any of the characters involved or about the Jewish mafia in general? Uh, that's an interesting question. And my my view as I was writing this was that, what, and I sort of alluded to it a little earlier, was that uh, so much uh, since uh, uh, social media has become so prevalent in our society and there are so many groups on Facebook and all these other groups about organized crime that they raise these people up to something that we didn't see them as at Mm. that time. Uh, I'm not in any way normalizing anything they did. My mother wouldn't let us. She knew who they were, but they were also family. And uh, we always had a uh, uh, two different views of the whole thing. But those people back then didn't have uh, the, the, the luster, if that's not the right word, but they didn't, uh, um, they didn't have the cachet that they have now where people are discussing every minute detail of their life. I didn't know every minute detail of their life. And when I started putting some of these stories up on Facebook just a year ago, um, I found all these Facebook groups with tens of thousands of people that would write to me and ask me, uh, questions like, and I would answer them and uh, uh, to m- the best of my ability. But uh, I, I can't. Uh, uh, there, there was. Uh, I, I can't think of any specific um, uh, uh, occurrence, event that uh, I, I uh, uh, blew up and and uh, and when I, a lot of those things. They're all possible um, uh, things that could have happened. Uh, I, I might have learned something as a child and heard it my whole life. And as I did research, I found there was another explanation, but it never uh, 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 ne- negated the explanation I heard. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. Sure. But, okay. Well, yeah. I, yeah, no, I, I figured I would ask. There might not be uh, an answer for, for all, uh, for, you know, for, for all I know. What were, to the best of your knowledge and based on your research, what were the interactions like between the Jewish gangsters and the Italian gangsters, the early formation of uh, the five families and the people behind it? How did they interact with the higher-profile Jewish gangsters? Well, uh, I'm glad you asked because that was one of the 
uh, things that I always admired when I was younger. And my mother, who was a Greek Jew, uh, not an Eastern European Jew, she at times was uh, weepy about the strength the Italians showed the Jews in Europe during World War II, during Nazi occupation. A matter of fact, I wrote about that in, in the book. The Jews did better in Italy than they did in almost every other country mm. that was under Nazi occupation. And uh, one of the um, uh, books that I had uh, read, uh, uh, which was uh, explaining how the Jews got to uh, Italy, the um, a, a, um, uh, a German officer in the Gestapo wrote from Rome to back to Berlin, basically saying uh, that these Italians are not just passively resisting turning in the Jews, they're aggressively resisting it. And uh, um, this went on uh, in, in New York City as well. The Italians and the Jews arrived at the same time, about 1880, 1890, in mass migrations they came to a city like New York or Boston, and they were the underdog. The Irish had been there two generations before that and were in control of the courts and the fire department. Uh, and there was basically, you know, uh, Jews and Italians need not apply. So they saw themselves. Also, there were communities that were right next to each other on the Lower East Side. And they had a history going back to... Uh, Going back to uh, 1,500 years before Christ, when uh, the uh, Jews and the Phoenicians were, were the first traders on the on the Mediterranean, they set up shop in Italy and Sicily and Greece and uh, Tunisia. These people had a long history with each other. And the Jews in Italy uh, during the war looked like the Italians, unlike in Eastern Europe, where they were uh, uh, had a whole different mm -hmm. uh, community. In Italy, they spoke Italian. They dressed uh, the same way. And the Jews and the Italians bonded immediately. In, and that doesn't mean that there weren't Italians who wanted nothing to do with Jews or Jews who didn't want. But as a generalization, they saw the benefit of uh, bonding together. And I grew up understanding and seeing it, and I mentioned several specific instances of this is how organized crime really uh, became America's cash cow. The, ca the, the biggest uh, cash cow industry in American history was organized crime. And it was built by Italians and Jews, uh, other groups too. But the core of it was that they also traded, they, they, they traded pieces of their own illegal businesses with each other. I saw that as a young person. I mentioned it in several different ways in the book, that that, that was the bond of organized crime. We always think of people getting shot and killed and all these uh, people in the cars and what have you and Dutch Schultz in a bar. Uh, but the real fact is that uh, they built a, a business, an ongoing business, an ongoing criminal concern that brought in Millions of dollars during the Depression. Right. Uh, this lasted the Prohibition, the Depression, World War II. It was an extraordinary uh, business that these two ethnic groups put together. 
One of, I hope I'm not talking too much. No, 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 no. I, I find it fascinating. And uh, well, this is just the tip of the iceberg. If people are interested in learning more, they should absolutely uh, check out the book. Again, the title is Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz. And uh, we're talking with the author, Alan Geik. Alan, um, we've seen a variety of factors influence the decline in power of organized crime. And I have to think that one of them is the lotto. You write extensively about the role that the mob played in the numbers racket. Now, there's really no need to play numbers because you could just buy a lotto ticket. As far as you're concerned, Alan, how much did the legalization, whether it's booze, whether it's numbers, whether it's other things, how much did the legalization of so many of the vices that the mob was making money from hurt the overall growth of the mob and their future business ventures? I I think it hurt uh, a fair amount, especially, as you mentioned, the lotto. Uh, I know it was probably still easier for a while once the lotto started for people to not give up their old habit of giving the guy on the uh, corner by the uh, subway station a quarter for the week. But uh, the other thing that happened around the same time, in my belief, uh, was uh, the RICO Act. The RICO Act uh, started in about 1970 and uh, basically made uh, 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 widened out the uh, uh, criminal conspiracy Mm. law. And it gave really heavy sentences to people involved in these crimes. And we saw lots of people informing after that. It was a difference between going to jail for two or three years and going to jail for 20 or 30 years. Uh, and uh, with that, also, wiretapping uh, technology improved. I know that because my brother did so many illegal wiretaps for the police department in the late 1960s. I wrote about that uh, as well. But I think all of these things you are mentioning definitely made an inroad into organized crime. And once it became uh, uh, more of a a public uh, uh, issue uh, and the uh, prosecutors were able to get uh, wiretaps, as they did in the uh, commission trials in the mid-1980s, they had everyone on tape uh, 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 talking about their crimes that that all played the same part uh, the, uh, to uh, lessen the effect, uh, the influence of, of organized crime as we knew it before that. Do you think that the that your family history and the fact that um, you knew some folks that maybe were a little too king the law, do you think that had any effect on your brother's decision to become a, a police officer and specifically an NYPD de- detective? Wow. Yes. Uh, that was something we had thought about, and I talked with my brother about it, too. My brother, being older than us, always had a, a, a pull in that direction. He probably would have liked to have been one of them, but he really didn't have that kind of inner core. And I did it to my father to be one of those guys. And he wound up becoming a police depart- uh, uh, on the police department, 
And one of the people who was his rabbi, as they called them, anybody, Italian, Irish, Jewish, if you're in the New York City uh, um, uh, public services, you have a rabbi who brings you up the uh, ladder of uh, wherever you are, was uh, a man who was very close to my Uncle George. And when my Uncle George came to town, uh, he would often be there when my Uncle George came from Las Vegas with Skim. This man, who was a a chief of detectives, would often be around my Uncle George, and he wound up becoming my brother's um, uh, rabbi. And my brother, it was a police department that was wild, and uh, uh, there was no supervision at the time. I'm not making light of what my brother's uh, role in all this is. But yes, he would have, there was a part of him that pulled him towards... uh, uh, organized crime. He he admired them in, in a way that my sister and I didn't. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. You have so many great stories in the book, and like I said, we're not even scratching the surface <laughs> in all of them, uh, but one I am going to ask you to to mention because it was a story that I don't believe that I'd heard before, and that has to do with how the mob scammed Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, also a legendary figure, uh, very much sort of a mysterious figure because of his reclusive nature, particularly later in life, conquered so many different industries, uh, real estate, aviation, motion pictures, what did he have to do with the mob? Well, uh, my Uncle George, uh, I started the whole story with my Uncle George and uh, his uh, lifelong partner, Ruby Collett, climbing into a Lower East Side dry goods store and making off with some uh, stuff when they were 12 or 13 years old in the mid-20s. Forty years later, Ruby Collett is the president of the Stardust and I'm of, of the Desert Inn, and Uncle George was Sam Giancana's main guy there, the only one, Sam Giancana. These guys had gone through all of those 40 years of depression and what have you. Ruby, uh, Howard Hughes, at the, in the early 60s, he, uh, saw, he had to sell, a, a, uh, sell one of his businesses because of antitrust, whatever. He, saw, he had a huge amount of money. He said, let's put it in this cash flow uh, of Las Vegas, so he went to Las Vegas. He took uh, over a couple of uh, floors at the Desert Inn. And uh, after a while, they wanted him out. So Ruby Collard, who 40 years earlier was this urchin on the Lower East Side, is telling Howard Hughes to leave. Mm-hmm. And Howard Hughes buys all the uh, about six casinos, including the Desert Inn, uh, for cash flow. But the, unbelievably, the mistake he made was he left all these casinos, the cash Cal casinos in the hands of the same people who had been skimming for the past 15 plus years. So all these guys who they didn't care about Howard Hughes. I wound up meeting uh, several of them in 1976 when I went to Las Vegas and met my father there. Uh, One of them, uh, a well-known 
casino operator, uh, uh, floor manager at the time named Peanut said, we didn't care about Howard Hughes. We rubbed them blind. He put in FBI agents. We didn't care about FBI agents. They don't know anything about gambling. We, we would never do uh, to the mob what we did to Howard Hughes. And the end of the story is that within two years, uh, from 1968, I think was the year when he first bought the hotels, uh, to 1970, he lost a ton of money because they ripped him off, and uh, he left Las Vegas. And uh, it sort of st- you just mentioned all of those uh, his bio, and when you would think someone like that would say, well, wherever the cash is, we have to uh, control that to begin with. And that was the last thing he controlled and never did. So much has been read, uh, has been written and talked about regarding the mob's role in the formation of Las Vegas and making it sort of a gambling mecca. As best as you can tell, films that depict that, like Bugsy, the Warren Beatty film from 30 years ago, how accurate is a film like Bugsy in exploring the role of the mob, particularly Jewish mobsters, in the formation of the early Las Vegas casinos? Well, I think uh, all every film uh, that we could mention has uh, varying degrees of, um, of truth to them. Uh, and uh, being that Hollywood, they have to... Uh, uh, they have to go off in their own direction. I, for one, when I saw a Casino, that happened in the Stardust after my uncle had passed away, after they had given over control to uh, a group that wound up getting uh, um, busted and wiretaps, and we all know the story of Casino. But to me, that had a, a much uh, real uh, feel to it, even though I read now on uh, the social media sites where people pick apart all of these movies, but they all had some uh, uh, element of, of truth, even going back to Public Enemy with uh, James Cagney. I mean, there was so much in it that was ridiculous, but yet the underlying theme of him trying, he really needs to be a gangster. He needs to um, uh, move on. He has to, I mean, this is what drives him. So there's there's fact and fiction in all of those movies uh, that I've seen. And again, I I wasn't there in those eras. So it's hard for me to really uh, pull out. uh, But I'm just guessing from having been a film editor in Hollywood (laughs) and uh, that a lot of it, uh, that there was a a fair amount of stuff that just needed to be put in to uh, make it more... uh, Uh, bearable for the audience. Finally, and uh, again, we should talk again because there's a lot of other things I'd like to go over with you, and there's a lot of great stories in this book, but you do delve a little bit into the mob's role in World War II, uh, particularly their interactions with the CIA. Explain to folks, this may uh, seem strange for people to believe now because they're so accustomed to prosecutors for the federal government and the mob being at loggerheads, but explain to folks what exactly did the mob do in order to help the American effort during World War II? Right before the war started, before America got involved in it, there were Nazis on the streets in Manhattan. There was a famous rally, 20,000 people in Madison Square Garden. 
once the war started and Nazi submarines were picking off uh, oil tankers off the America's coast, the question came up to the, uh, and it wasn't the CIA at the time, whatever the intelligence agency uh, was called at the time, Navy intelligence, like, how did these submarines, are they being supplied by uh, 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 boats from uh, Manhattan and uh, the East Coast? How did they, don't they need uh, distilled water for their batteries? All these questions came up, but they couldn't infiltrate the docks because the docks were so closed. You couldn't have some Ivy League guy uh, in 1940, wearing a bow tie, going into a bar on the low, on the docks in Manhattan, and trying to become one of them, so they wound up uh, going to uh, a man named uh, Sax Lanza, who really controlled the docks. He was an associate of Lucky Luciano, and they got Lucky Luciano, who was in jail at the time, and it, this would help him get out. Uh, they get, he gave them he's, they he helped them all get into important jobs in bars and uh, elevators where they could really uh, crack down on any kind of uh, sabotage that might be happening during World War II. They even took them out on boats out into the um, uh, Atlantic. So without the mob help in getting the U.S. intelligence agencies positioned on the, on the docks and in boats and in throughout Manhattan, which was all controlled by the mob at the time, they would have never been able to do it. And, uh, and uh, that lasted throughout the war. And those people, after the war, uh, sort of gravitated to, uh, to being a, an underground for um, money and uh, uh, equipment and manpower going to fight uh, for Israel in the War of uh, Independence. It's uh, fascinating stuff. Alan Geick, I want to thank you for the time. I hope everybody checks out the book. Uh, It's called Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz, The Jewish Mob, A Family Affair. It's available on Amazon and most other places where books are available. Alan, thank you. Best of luck with the book. All the best to you. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you. If you are hearing this podcast for the first time, I do hope you'll not only share it on social media and email it to a friend, but make sure to hit the subscribe button so that every time we have a new edition of this podcast, you can get it right there on your phone in real time as it's posted. By the way, if you want to email me, you can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 